this morning we're moving into the midpoint of, of our, our study, uh, at least as far as chapters are concerned. But John has brought us, in chapters 2 and 3, through what is the almost 2,000-year period that we call the, the church age. He's brought us through seven periods of church history. He brought us through the whole sequence of the event that those of us know the Lord Jesus Christ is our personal Savior, that we're anticipating even to take place before this service is over. It's an event that we're longing for, an event that's called the rapture of the church. We, we saw that and, and how he lays all of that out in chapter 4 and what happens immediately after that in heaven in chapter 5. And then we saw as we began chapter 6 that he brought us through the tribulation period. He brought us through the tribulation period in chapter 6 for the first of four times in the book of Revelation. He's going to take us four times through that incredible period that Jesus said was like none other. In chapter 6, he brought us through that tribulation period, giving us a, a panorama, just kind of hitting the high points of the tribulation period, bringing us through the, the, the opening of the seven seals, and then he began to bring us in chapters 8 and 9 through the tribulation period for the second time, this time through the sounding of, of seven trumpets. And then last week, we came to a parenthesis in chapter 10. We covered chapter 10 last week, and now this morning, we, we come to, to chapter 11 in our study, and we're still in the midst of this parenthesis. But there's something that I want you to see about this chapter 11, and you look, just look at the top of your study sheet. I've entitled the message today, The Key Chapter to Understanding the Bible. The Key Chapter to Understanding the Bible. Now, I didn't say to understanding the book of Revelation. I said the key chapter to understanding the Bible. Now, most of you are probably thinking right now that that's probably an overstatement or an over-dramatization of the, the things that are covered in this chapter. But I think as we get into it this morning, you'll see just why that I, I've said that this chapter is the chapter of the Bible that is either going to open the Bible for you or it's the chapter of the Bible that's going to close it. And let me show you, first of all, the general importance of the, this chapter, the overarching reason that this chapter is so key to understanding the rest of the Bible. And, and this is the way that it pans out, and for those of you that do like to take notes, you can start right here, okay? <clears throat> if you're going to keep yourself doctrinally straight in this dispensation that we're presently living in, which of course is the church age, if you're going to keep yourself doctrinally straight, there are three books of the Bible that you've got to make sure that you understand. Those three books are the book of Matthew, the book of Acts, and the book of Hebrews. But the fact is, you'll never get those three books straight doctrinally until you have an understanding of the Old Testament. In other words, the key to understanding those three books of the Bible is understanding the Old Testament, but you'll never understand the Old Testament unless you understand the book of Revelation. Because you see, the book of Revelation is what shows us the end of the story, where all of this history of the Old Testament was pointing to. So if you're going to understand the Old Testament, 
You've got to understand the book of Revelation. But you'll never really understand the book of Revelation without a proper understanding of chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. You see, people mess up the book of Revelation because, quite honestly, they mess up chapter 11. And then when you mess up chapter 11, you know what you can do? Just, just look at that little sequence that I just gave you. You can just work your way back up through it. You mess up Revelation chapter 11, then you mess up the book of Revelation. You mess up the book of Revelation, you mess up the Old Testament, you mess up the Old Testament, you mess up, mess up Matthew, Acts, and Hebrews. You mess up Matthew, Acts, and Hebrews, and you know what you'll do? You'll end up claiming Bible verses that'll take you straight to the pit of hell. Is that wild? So, I don't know what all that says to you, but that would say to me that if all those things are true, then this is a pretty key chapter of the Bible, one that you want to make sure that you don't miss. So that's the general importance of Revelation chapter 11. Now let's talk about the specific importance of this chapter. What are the, what are the specific subjects that this chapter deals with that make this chapter that important of, of, of a chapter well first of all this chapter gives us the teaching concerning the infamous two witnesses the teaching concerning the two witnesses and after you've written that look at verse 3 with me verse 3 says and I will give power unto my two witnesses and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. And what makes this so important, folks, listen to this, is every false system of religion that is on this planet this morning that goes by the name Christian is going to find themselves in Revelation chapter 11. And what they're going to do is they're going to pervert who the context clearly teaches that these two witnesses are and what they're going to do is they're going to write that thing into Revelation chapter 11 that is going to make them the only ones on this planet that are right. And we're not going to get into the two witnesses today. We're going to be looking at the panorama of chapter 11. You'll understand that further as we begin to get into this thing. But what it's going to show is that their brand of Christianity is right because of how they force into this passage. It's not a matter of interpretation. I mean, the Bible lays out who the two witnesses are. It's not real tough. But you see, if you want to rewrite yourself and you want to rewrite the Bible, just reinterpret who the two witnesses are, and that's exactly what every brand of Christianity on this planet does that is a false system of religion. Then next, this chapter introduces us for the very first time in the book of Revelation to the teaching concerning the beast the beast and you'll notice that verse 7 says and when they shall have finished their testimony and that's referring to the two witnesses the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them <clears throat> and shall overcome them and kill them and what everybody wants to do when they come to Revelation chapter 11 everybody wants to come to this and they want to to spiritualize this beast, in, it beast into a, a, a spirit of Antichrist or a system of Antichrist. But what we're going to find is that this beast 
based on what we find in the book of Revelation and as we cross-reference that this beast is a man. He was a man, listen, who was living before John wrote the book of Revelation, but a man who wasn't living at the time that he wrote the book of Revelation, but is a man who is alive during the tribulation period. Because he ascends out of the bottomless pit. Okay, you can just you can just hang on that for right now. And again, we'll we'll cover this in detail as we go through this chapter. I'm just trying to get you to see the significance of what's going on in this chapter. And this man that we're talking about that is the beast, listen to this. This is the man in the Bible who, other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself, is the most important person in the entire Bible. There are more references to this man than there are to Moses, David, Paul, all of those guys combined. This is the one that there are 18 types that foreshadow his coming to this planet. This is the one that is known in the scripture by more than 25 different titles. And you see him over and over and over again. So you better properly identify this beast. It shows up in Revelation chapter 11. Next, chapter 11 gives to us the teaching concerning the rebuilding of the temple. The rebuilding of the temple. John says, look in, look in verse 1. It says, <clears throat> And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. And you know what's kind of wild, folks? Is that when John was receiving this revelation in approximately 95 A.D., there was no temple in Jerusalem at that time. He had seen its destruction in 70 A.D. when Titus came in with his Roman legion and they absolutely leveled the city of Jerusalem, including the incredible Herod's temple that was there, absolutely fulfilling the scripture that Jesus said there won't be one stone left upon another. In 70 A.D. it happened when John was receiving this. There was no temple to measure, and what's even wilder is here we are this morning, sitting in 1998, anticipating that the rapture could take place at any moment on this planet, but today... If John was given that rod and told to go measure the temple, there's no temple for him to measure. So you see, everybody starts starts wigging out on, on, on that, that thing, and they, they start trying to, to interpret all of that. But you know what? If you just leave this chapter alone and just let it teach what, what it teaches, then you're going to come out of this chapter believing that the temple in Jerusalem will be rebuilt in exactly the same location that Solomon's temple was built, and it's going to be up and running by the midpoint of the tribulation period. That is, if you just believe what you read. Now, you see, we're sitting here this morning, and because of our approach to the Bible, I mean, hey, it's no problem for us. Hey, if the Bible says that temple's going to be there and he's going to measure it by the midpoint in the tribulation period, then, hey, that's no big, big deal. But I, but I want you to understand this this morning. 
that for you to believe that, for you to believe as a believer in Jesus Christ that that temple in Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt, it moves you out of the mainstream of Christianity. 99% of the people on this planet who profess the name of Jesus Christ who stand in seminaries and teach the people that are going to be teaching the people all over this planet that name the name of Jesus Christ, 99% of them do not believe what Revelation chapter 11 verses 1 and 2 says. That the temple is going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem and it will be done by the time we get midway through the tribulation period. And you see, once you mess that up, then you mess up the next thing that's on your sheet because they don't believe that and they also don't believe the teaching concerning the restoration of Israel the restoration of Israel and this now listen this is where the chapter is either gonna make or break you you'll notice in verse 8 that in this dispensation that we're living in the great city which by its own context it lets you know that this is Jerusalem, but, but in this dispensation, in the church age that we're presently living in, the great city, it says in verse 8, is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt because of its rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But listen, by the time we get 42 months into the tribulation period where God begins to fulfill his promises to the nation of Israel, verse 2, look back up at verse 2, verse 2 calls the great city the holy city. And by the time we get out of chapter 11, all of the promises of the Bible, all of the the, the zillion promises of the Old Testament that were given to the nation of Israel, by the time we get out of chapter 11, if you just leave chapter 11 alone, you just believe what it says, where it says it, how you find it, and you just don't mess with it, And what you find is every single promise that God gave to the nation of Israel is going to be fulfilled by the time we get out of Revelation chapter 11. And you see, unless you believe that God is going to do that, unless you believe that God is going to fulfill all of the Old Testament promises concerning the nation of Israel, then you'll be forced to believe when you come to the rest of your Bible, what you're going to be forced to believe is that God set the nation of Israel totally aside and once you do that what you've got to do is you've got to read some things into the Bible you've got to begin to read that what God is going to do now that he's replaced the nation of Israel you've got to start believing that the church has now replaced Israel and now the church is the recipient of all of these promises that were given to the nation of Israel and I'm telling you 95 to 99% of the people on this planet that claim to be fundamental Bible-believing people are people that believe just that. It's what is called replacement theology. Replacement theology that the church has replaced Israel. All of this stuff about rebuilding the temple, the restoration of Israel, that's all a bunch of hogwash All of these things are to be spiritually understood when we come to Revelation chapter 11. And and you see, now listen, once you buy into that, folks, you're sunk. You're just absolutely sunk because, you see, then you can't understand what verse 12 
is laying out concerning the teaching, the teaching concerning the rapture of tribulation saints. And you see, what you do is you start trying to make what we see there in verse 12, you try to read the church in there, you try to do the same thing over in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 31 where it talks about the trumpet sounding and the elect being caught up and from one end of, of heaven to the other. And you see, you get yourself all messed up with this rapture thing. You start putting it at the wrong place. And then you get yourself messed up on the teaching in verse 15 concerning the return of Christ. The return of Christ. The second coming of Christ. You start getting that thing. Once you... Once you make all these other errors in chapter 11, by the time you get down to verse 15 in the second coming of Christ, you don't have a clue where to put that thing. So, you, Now that's just an overview. Now if you don't understand all of those things, that's alright. What I'm trying to get you to see, these are the main subjects, these are the specific teachings of this chapter that show you just why this is the most important chapter in the entire Bible. And now I want us to take the rest of the time this morning to show you how, how all of this that we're talking about here in chapter 11, how all of this affects you doctrinally, the, the doctrinal importance of Revelation chapter 11. And what I'm trying to get you to see here is, is that how you interpret the things that are going on in, in this chapter will determine what you believe about the entire rest of the Bible. Because what it comes down to is this chapter will determine whether or not you place the Jew correctly, both biblically and historically. This chapter is going to determine where you place the Jew. And I'm telling you, right now on this planet, you won't find one person out of a hundred that knows how to place the Jew in the scripture. And, and I know that if you're here this morning and you're a guest, you're thinking, who do you think you are to be that one out of a hundred? And, and the, I think what you'll see this morning is if you just let the Bible be the Bible, you don't have to put him anywhere, just let him sit where he sits and just believe what you read. But when you get in trouble, when you start going to it and start saying, now, I believe that this means... No, it means just what it says. So we just, we just let it lay where it is. Now, this, this belief that God is all finished with the Jew, I want to show you the origin of this teaching, because it's, it's not new. Now, the popularization of, of this teaching in this century is a, a new deal, and especially by those claiming to be fundamental. But this teaching goes all the way back into the Smyrna church period that is found back in Revelation chapter 2. So turn back there if you would. Revelation chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 8 through 11. Now I don't have time to, to go into a long explanation on this, but for you folks who are guests, in chapters 2 and 3, God brings us through these seven letters that, uh, in, in, in these chapters he brings us through seven periods of church history. These letters represent periods of church history. The Smyrna church period is the period on this planet from 200 A.D. to 325 A.D. And of course, 325 A.D. is the, the infamous council 
of Nicaea. That's when the Council of Nicaea took place. And if you don't know what that was, listen, all all that you really need to know is that it was a a huge... Now listen, what the Council of Nicaea was, was a, a huge meeting of pastors and religious leaders by the invitation of Constantine. Constantine sends out a letter inviting all of these pastors and religious leaders that were in the Roman Empire to come. And as they come together, they're coming together for the purpose of dropping the things that were different among them. They're gathering together saying, we need to put aside our petty little differences And we need to start emphasizing the things that we share in common with one another. And basically what the whole meeting was about was Constantine asking these religious leaders and pastors to to keep some promises for the sake of unity. Now, if you think that that's just a big crock, and if that ticks you off, I beg you, I beg you, go study it for yourself. And go check out the Council of Nicaea and just find out if that is not exactly what was going on there. And what you find out is all of those that kept the promises to maintain that unity fell under the domination of a false religious system that Revelation 17 identifies as the mother of harlots. Now, that's not real popular today. But we've never really concerned ourselves with being popular, have we? <clears throat> but the, the, the Smyrna period is spelled out for us here in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And I want to show you here how the... Uh, show you the origin of this teaching that God has finished with the Jew. Look with me at the middle of verse 9. Jesus says... And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Now, it's very important that we have an understanding what this teaching actually is, because in verse 9, what our Lord does here, now listen so carefully, what our Lord is saying here, what he calls this teaching is he calls it satanic, and he calls it blasphemy. I mean, now those are some, some mighty strong words there, folks. Whatever this teaching is, it's one that you definitely don't want to find yourself embracing. It's satanic, and it's blasphemous. And, and something else that makes understanding this so important is that verse 9 lets you know that this will be... Okay, now remember, historically, we're between the years 200 to 325 A.D. And what this lets you know is that this teaching is going to be one of the fundamental false doctrines upon which Satan will build his counterfeit church or his counterfeit religious system that the Lord calls here the synagogue of Satan. And that false doctrine is going to be embraced by a group of people, look at what it says there, who say they are Jews, but they aren't. Now, what is that all about? Well, back in the Ephesus church period, in in verses 1 through 7, that period from 90 A.D. to 
200 A.D., we saw that there were some people there, some church fathers, the ones that were called the apostolic church fathers. They began to leave the word of God. They left their first love and they began to make some deviations from the word of God. By the time we get to verse 8 through 11 in the Smyrna church period, there's a group of men who is leading in what is presumed to be the, the, the church. And it's a group of men that are called the anti Nicene Church Fathers, anti, A-N-T-E, the anti-Nicene Church Fathers, okay, and what that means is these are the church fathers who were before the Council of Nicaea when all of the unity thing happened and the church, the counterfeit system got up and running, okay, you, you guys following that? Church leaders at that time were the anti-Nicene church fathers but what you begin to see in the in the writings and you can go back yourself and again i challenge you to do this you can go back and check out the writings from the anti-nicene church fathers in that period and what you're going to find in their writings is they begin to talk about the fact that because the christian is a spiritual jew and and paul talks about this in in romans chapter 2 but be, they, they, they conclude that since the Christian is a spiritual Jew, he's also a physical Jew. And because of that, then all of the promises in the Bible to the Jew are now given to the Christians. And because of that, God is all finished with the Jew. So all of these promises that you see, well, you can just flake those out because the church is going to be the one that is the recipient of those promises now. So in other words... Since God's all finished with the Jew, and here comes the replacement theology, folks. The Christian has replaced the Jew. The church has replaced Israel. And the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven in the Bible are the same thing. Now, now you need to listen to me here, okay? Again, I want to emphasize the fact that what I'm talking about right here, some of you right now are probably going, I don't know how this affects me. Okay, what I'm trying to get you to see, all of Christianity right now believes this trash. I, I, I'm not overstating that. Okay? They, they all b- believe that. And this is a majorly big deal because I've already shown you in verse 9 that our Lord calls it blasphemy. And the key tenant of Satan's counterfeit church. And to put it in terms that perhaps you can identify with, what we're saying here is what you believe about the Jew. Now, I wish I had the time to to fill in all of the gaps that might be in some of your minds. But if you'll go back in the Old Testament to the book of Proverbs... The book of Proverbs is going to teach you some things about ancient landmarks. And what it says is don't mess with the ancient landmarks which the fathers have set because when you do, you enter into the fields of the fatherless. Now folks, any way you slice it, the Jew in the Bible becomes, for the Bible, an ancient landmark. And once you move that Jew... Listen, you enter into the fields of the fatherless. You start thinking you're one place when you're actually 
in another. You see, and that, that, that's what happens to you when you start thinking that you're replacing the Jew and that you're an heir to the promises that were given to the Jews. What happens to you is you enter into the fields of the fatherless and you start trying to make your way around the Bible and because you don't have any landmarks, you're going to wind up going around in circles thinking you're in one place when actually you're in a totally different place. You're going to be thinking that you are you're glorifying His holy name when actually you are blaspheming it, according to verse 9. I mean, listen, it's scary. If what I'm telling you is true, it's scary. Because our Lord calls this with the strongest terminology of any place in the entire Bible. But to break it down <clears throat> into terms that most of you have heard before, what you believe about the Jew is going to put you in one of three categories doctrinally when it comes to, the, to what the Bible teaches about the millennium. The millennium. Now this is Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 7, where it teaches about the millennium. Okay? Now based on where you land on this whole subject that we're talking about here this morning, you're either going to be pre-millennial, or post-millennial, or ah-millennial. Just put an A in front of it. You say, well, what does all that mean? Well, and, and, and again, I, I feel like I, I need to just keep saying this. Some of you are going, what is this, theology class? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. You know what? Most, most, most churches... Don't teach doctrine. You know why? Because people aren't hungry for it. You know why? They just want something that's going to help me through the next 15 minutes. And if you can make me feel better in the next 15 minutes, I love you. And if you can get me out of here in 15 minutes, I love you even more. But, but folks, I'm telling you, you, you may enjoy the next 15 minutes. We're, we're talking about stuff that will cause you to enjoy the rest of your eternity. Because you don't want to mess up in some of what we're talking about here. You don't want to think that you're in the church of Jesus Christ when you're in the synagogue of Satan. And you know what? I, I, know, it is, I know it's true. Some of you are going to flake out on me this morning. You'll end up one of these days sitting in the synagogue of Satan thinking you're on your way to heaven. Okay, so you're going to be premillennial, you're going to be postmillennial, you're going to be amillennial, okay? So what does all that mean? Well, the word millennium itself is a, it's a Latin word that comes from mill, which means 1,000, and the word annum, which means year. And, of course, it has to do with the thousand-year reign of Christ that's talked about in Revelation chapter 20. That thousand-year reign of Christ, listen, in a literal, physical, earthly kingdom where the Lord Jesus Christ sits enthroned on the throne of David in Jerusalem and rules the earth. And, and, and what that means, and, and it's very important that you make this connection, okay, the millennium 
The millennium is always a political issue because it deals with governmental authority on the earth. Okay, now, now I, I know you're going to write that, and I want you to just think through it. If the millennium is a literal, physical, governmental, earthly kingdom on the earth, then this thing is always going to deal with, with politics. The governments of the world are always going to be involved with, with this thing. And you'll see that as we continue this, this morning, but that's not a statement you want to blow over. You've you, you, you got to get that in your head. In fact, go back to Isaiah chapter 9 for a minute. Isaiah chapter 9. Now, normally we, we only go to this verse when it's Christmas. We only want to believe half of the verse. Revelation chapter, or hmm, Isaiah chapter 9. And look at verse 6. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. Now watch this. And the government, I said, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now, let me ask you, was verse 6, the entirety of it, was it fulfilled in his first coming? No. The government was not upon his shoulder. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. And again, was that fulfilled in his first coming? Was the increase of his government and his peace, has there been any end? Did he sit on the throne of David and set up his kingdom on the earth? No. Look at the last part of the verse. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will... Perform this. You catch it? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. In other words, it's going to happen just exactly the way that Isaiah said that it would. But understand, the issue of the millennium has to do with governmental authority. So what you believe about the millennium is going to affect what you believe about governments and politics. And, and now, now listen, understand that where we are, go back to Revelation chapter 2 now. Understand that this religious system that Satan is developing in this Smyrna church period, his counterfeit church, because they say they are Jews, you know what they're going to do? They're going to grab a hold of governments through this counterfeit church. Are, are you hearing me? Okay, now, now if you say, I don't understand where that's going, that's okay. I just want to make sure that, that you're hearing that this system of religion that Jesus calls here blasphemous, that he calls satanic, that he calls the synagogue of Satan by these people who say they are Jews when they're not, what he says is they're going to end up being the ones 
who are grabbing a hold of governments because that's what their kingdom is all about. Okay, and we'll talk further about this, but watch that. But the terms premillennial, postmillennial, and amillennial all have to do with what a person believes about the return of Christ. The return of Christ, the prefix pre. You guys know this. Of course, it means before. So a premillennialist is someone who believes that Christ will return before the thousand, the 1,000 years. Okay, the, the prefix post, of course, means what? After. So a post-millennialist is someone who believes that Christ will return after the 1,000 years. And, if, of course, the prefix a or a, it means what? Not. Not. Okay? And, and when it's used as a, a, a prefix, it implies the opposite or the reverse of the word that's following it. For example... Uh, a theist is somebody that believes in God. An atheist is someone who, not God, doesn't believe in God. An agnostic, it's ah in front of the word gnostic. No knowledge. If there's a God, you can't know him. Okay? Agnostic. And when we come to an amillennialist, it's someone who believes that Christ is not coming back to reign on this earth. 1,000 years. And, and, and let me just start breaking this down for you in just as simple terms as I, as I can say. Now, now here, here's where it, it, the bottom line is, folks. The difference between correct Bible doctrine and false Bible doctrine is whether or not somebody is pre-millennial. Somebody who is pre-millennial is going to know where to place the Jew correctly in the Word of God, so he'll have the ancient landmarks in the Bible set for him, and so he'll, so he'll know what passages belong to the Jew, and he'll know what passages don't. Now listen, you, you need to understand that. And, and make sure that you don't miss this, folks, that the devil's most, most subtle trick is not to deny God, it's not to deny the virgin birth, it's not to deny the bodily resurrection or the deity of Christ. His most subtle trick, folks, is to use the Bible against people who believe it by taking verses that don't have any application to them and making those people think that they do apply it to them. You see, I mean, that's, man, that's a great little game to be able to play with folks. If they believe it, well, just start making them grab things that don't belong to them, and they start believing that, and boy, then they're in a big heap of trouble. And you see, if somebody comes along and they say, oh, I don't even believe the virgin birth. Okay, you know what? That, that guy's not no threat. Watch out for the guy that's just got an undying belief in everything that he reads and thinks it's all for him. We talked about this, this so many, many times here that not every verse in the Bible is written to a Christian in this age. Listen, make sure that you understand that. Hey, this is a great book, but not everything in it is written to, to give you doctrine for as a Christian in this age. Not everything in the Bible is Christian doctrine. 
For example, and we, I want to just go through a few practical little things here to, to show you how this thing pans out. Go to the book of Acts chapter 2 and let's talk about the subject of baptism for just a minute. Acts chapter 2, and look at verse 38. Acts chapter 2 verse 38 says, Repent and be baptized for the remission of of sins. Now, I mean, folks, hey, how much clearer can it be? Right? That's exactly what the Bible says. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. But let me tell you, if you try to go to Acts 2.38 and make that Christian baptism like the Church of Christ people do, what you're going to do is you're going to find yourself in a whole big heap of trouble. I mean, all, all you got to do is go to Acts chapter 2 and start looking into the context here. And, I mean, you're going to find out four specific times. Look at verse 5. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem, who? Jews. Verse 14. Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem. Look at verse 22. Ye men of Israel. Verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel... And you know what? You don't have to be a rocket scientist. All you've got to do is just be somebody that believes the Bible. And God tells you who the audience is. Peter is preaching to Jews, the house of Israel, on the day of Pentecost. And the subject that matter that he's been covering in this message is the fact that the Jews have just crucified their Messiah. But you know what the Church of Christ people do? They come and they take Acts 2.38 that was written to the Jews, and they take that as instruction for what they, the house of Israel, were to do because they were the ones who had delivered up their, their very own Messiah to be crucified. And, and this is what Peter is saying. You guys crucified the Lord of glory. And they come to the point and they say, well, what do we do? He says, repent and be baptized. Who's supposed to repent and be baptized? Those people who were responsible for killing the Lord at that period of time. That's what those people were supposed to do. They didn't ask, what must I do to be saved? They asked, what do we do? Who's we? The nation of Israel. The nation of Israel that was specifically responsible for crucifying the Lord of glory. But when you do what the Church of Christ do, and you start grabbing that as Christian doctrine, and you try to apply that to your salvation, folks, I don't know any other way to tell you. You do that, and you'll end up in hell. Oh, I don't think it's that, that significant, folks. Listen, if you try to make baptism a condition for salvation, then what you've just done is you've added your works to the finished work of Christ on the cross. And if you have to add your works or the works of some man, that means that Christ didn't really finish the work that was necessary to provide our salvation on the cross. And you know what that is? Blasphemy. It's blasphemy. Our Lord said in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 9, I know the blasphemy of them that say they are Jews and are not. And you see, a church of Christ here would tell you, well, I don't think I'm a Jew. Then listen, then why try to apply the conditions for Jewish salvation for the nation of Israel in the first Pentecost after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ to yourself? Galatians chapter 2 verse 21 says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. And we could say, if you get righteous before God because of your baptism, then why in the world did 
Jesus Christ get butchered on that cross. I mean, good night. Let's just spare all that he went through there and let's just, you know, turn on the water and let's have a big time and wash our sins away. No, you see, you, you buy that and he died in, in vain. If I've got to come along and, and do something more than he did, and if you add baptism as a condition of salvation, you frustrate the grace of God. And, and, and you know what? I, I, you know, I, I'm not trying to dog anybody here, but a lot of times we'll have people that will come to this church and they'll like the teaching of this church and, and all of that, and they come from a church of Christ background where they were baptized in the church of Christ, and, and what we're flat out going to tell you is if that's where you were baptized, you'll need to be dunked here as a renunciation of the false doctrine because that was not Christian baptism. That was Jewish baptism, and you need to be baptized in obedience to the command of Christ. And, and I, I'll just tell you, that offends a lot of people. So just understand that if you're a part of this church, that's where we land on that deal. We're going to redunk them. You come from anything that doesn't teach Bible, true Bible doctrine, and we're going to dunk you again. And so just understand that. So, you know, don't be getting over there in their corner and going, well, why in the devil do we believe that? Because it's right from the pit of hell. Ooh, didn't get as many amens on that as I thought. If you add baptism as a condition of salvation, Galatians 2.21, you frustrate the grace of God. I'm just telling you, let's just forget the whole death thing. Let's just all get baptized. The same thing's true when you come to the subject of tongues. We're going to get everybody happy today, aren't we? Okay, listen. If you get the Jew in his correct place in the Scripture... And not try to spiritualize the teaching for the Jews into the church. You see, this is, you see how practical all this stuff is that we're talking about? Once you scrub over here with the Jew, and you don't believe that all the promises of the Jew are going to come back to the Jew, but we're starting to apply them as the church, you get yourself in all kinds of trouble. Baptism, tongues, but buddy, you get the Jew straight, and all of a sudden, this is a, it's a no-brainer. I mean, it, 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 there's no, no, no tough thing to deal with here. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, lets us know that the general purpose of, of all of the signed gifts, or the miracle gifts, which would include tongues and healing and miracle or miraculous power, what, what Hebrews 2, 3, and 4 is going to let us know is that those gifts were to confirm the fact that the apostles were speaking for God, that God was doing something new. There was a new testament that was coming, a new covenant. You see, Jesus had been holding, or the, the Jews had been holding to a covenant for thousands of years. It's what we call the old covenant. Now God's doing something new. Okay? And, and at this, this point, in, in the, the early days in, in the scripture here, the new covenant had not yet been penned. There was no absolute final authority like we hold in our hands today about God's new covenant with man. And so what Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 4 says is that God bore witness on the apostles both with signs and wonders and divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, uh, the Holy Ghost according 
to his will. Listen, those gifts were not a prayer language. That wasn't what it was all about. It wasn't an ecstatic babbling. It was a gift that was given to be a sign that these men were indeed speaking for God and of God. And God gave them the ability to prove that, that, that he was really speaking through them with these gifts. But now listen, folks. We don't need that today because we have the complete revelation of the New Testament. And now if we want to know if somebody's speaking for God, we don't need him to do a trick or, or, or manifest some kind of a gift. All we've got to do is just say, does what he's saying match what the book says? And you see, and, and if you go to, to what God says in here about the specific purpose of tongues, then what you're going to find that God says in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 22 is you're going to find... It says that tongues are for a sign, and check this out now, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. Now, listen, you're going to just wipe out about 90% of the tongues movement right there with that statement. And then 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 22 says that the Jews require a sign. So you see, it's not real hard to figure out. Tongues are for a sign to unbelieving who? Jews. The Jews requires, require a sign. God says, I'll give you a sign. First, uh, first Corinthians one twenty-two goes on to say, the Greeks, the Gentiles, seek after wisdom. And so God says, I'll, I'll give you wisdom. And you know what he did? He wrapped up his wisdom in 22 books that we call the New Testament. He gave the Jews what they wanted. gave the Gentiles exactly what we need. We want it in black and white. You see? But you see, tongues are for a sign to unbelieving Jews, And if you go to the Bible to see how they're used, all it'll do is just verify the reality of that statement. You know, with all of the, the hoopla that goes on today about tongues, man, I'm telling you, you would think that they were just absolutely all over the Bible, and everybody who ever, you know, in the Bible ever knew God, man, they had the gift. But did you know this? That actually, in the Bible, you know, just scrape away all of the, all of the stuff... You come down to the fact that there's only three times in the entire Bible where somebody actually spoke in tongues. You find it in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 40, Acts chapter 10, verse 1 through chapter 11, verse 12, and then chapter 18 of the book of Acts, verse 24 through chapter 19, and verse 7. And you know what you find, folks? Listen, you know what you find in every single instance? An unbelieving Jew is present and God is giving them the sign that he knows that they require. And you see, you keep that landmark of that Jew or you'll get yourself messed up. And another one is eternal security. You see, now Baptists get dogged virtually by every other denomination on the globe for believing in the doctrine of eternal security. And of course, a lot of Baptists pervert the doctrine by calling people eternally secure who never were genuinely saved. 
But the Bible teaches very clearly that once you have been born again by the Spirit of God and placed into God's family and adopted as His Son, you can't get unborn. And it's not a matter of me holding on to Him, it's a matter of Him holding on to me. But those who teach against the doctrine of eternal security, and we've talked about this before, they are invariably going to wind up in a passage where the doctrinal teaching of the passage or, or of the book is the Jew in the tribulation period. They're going to take you somewhere in the book of Hebrews. But now, now, folks, listen to the title and tell me who this book was written to. It's the Epistle to the Hebrews. You see, that's not real tough, is it? Pretty easy to figure that one out. Or they'll take you somewhere in the book of James. But listen, you can't get past the first verse in the book of James without finding out that he is writing to the, what? The twelve tribes. What, what tribe are you from there, my Gentile brother? Or they'll take you over to Matthew 24 and they'll show you how the Bible says, He that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And if you don't endure to the end, buddy, then you can't be saved. The only problem is the context in Matthew 24 is the Jew in the tribulation period. And, and, and listen, go check it out and, and see if that isn't right. Do you see what I'm telling you? The only way to rightly divide the Word of God... And now listen, if God commands us in 2 Timothy 2.15, if He commands us to rightly divide it, then it, the opposite is also true. And it's possible to wrongly divide it. Okay? But the only way to rightly divide it is to believe in the premillennial return or coming of Christ because that's the only teaching that's going to leave the Jew alone and keeps the Jew in his proper place in the Scripture so that you can rightly divide it. And now let me show you what I'm talking about and show you how your, your view on this thing dictates to you basically everything that you believe and, and, and actually it ends up showing you what you do with your life. Okay, now let's talk first about premillennialism. Okay, now, if you're a part of this church and you believe that the doctrinal statement of this church, then it's a big, you know, big hairy word, but you're a premillennialist. Okay, and what that means is that we do not believe that God is finished with the Jew. We believe that Jesus Christ came the first time to this planet. He came to restore to man the image of God that he lost in the fall. Okay? And we've learned, as we've studied the Word of God together in this place of the last several years, we've learned that what we're talking about here, this image of God that was lost in the fall, that Jesus came to replace, is the spiritual kingdom in the Bible that the Bible calls the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, according to the Bible, is a spiritual kingdom. And we believe that when Jesus Christ came to this earth, he came to die on the cross for us so that we could have restored to us the spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of God that was lost in the fall. But we also believe that when Christ came the first time, we also believe that he came to set up a literal, physical, visible, earthly 
kingdom where he would rule and reign over all the earth from his throne in Jerusalem. It's the kingdom that is promised to the nation of Israel. It's referred to over 500 times in the Old Testament. It's the kingdom that is referred to in the Gospel of Matthew 33 specific times is the kingdom of heaven. It is the only place in the entire New Testament where you find it. In the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel written to present Christ as the King of the the Jews. And it's called in, in Matthew's Gospel, the Kingdom of Heaven. And again, now, the Kingdom of God is a what kind of a kingdom? It's a spiritual kingdom. It's within you. The kingdom of heaven is a literal kingdom on the literal earth where Christ rules and reigns from a literal throne over the literal nation of Israel. It's the kingdom that the disciples asked Jesus about in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, calling it the kingdom of Israel. Is this the time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? But you know what happened? He came unto his own, and his own what? His own received him not. They rejected their king and his offer of his kingdom. And you know what God did? In his grace, he turned to the Gentiles. That's where you and I come in, buddy. But now listen. We don't believe for a minute that that means that God is finished with the Jew. Not at all. Because we believe Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, where it says that blindness in part, this is Romans eleven twenty five. it says blindness in part is happened to Israel, and because it, because it did, we simply entered into a parenthesis that is called the church age. And what he, he even tells you in, in, in Romans chapter 11, he says, now listen, you Gentiles... Don't you get wise in your own conceits and think that you've replaced the Jews because you haven't. I mean, it's right there, folks. And yet, 99% of Christians on this planet embrace that theology. But we believe that God is going to restore the nation of Israel and all of His promises to them in the Old Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew. We believe that those promises are going to be fulfilled just like he said that they would. And because of that, I want you to know something. This is a church that is pro-Jewish. I thought it was. That'd be a, I know you're right. And that might be a good, hearty place to go. Amen! This is a church that is pro-Jewish. We stand with the nation of Israel because we believe that God is going to bless those that bless them. We believe that God's going to curse them that curse them. We, we believe that the blessings of God on this country hinge on two things. What we do with God's people, the Jew, and what we do with this book. And because of that, unless the rapture happens real soon, we think this country is all but washed up. Because they're making some major mistakes with this book. And I just got a sneaky suspicion that we're getting ready to make some unwise choices here before too long with the nation of Israel. But, but we, we leave the, the promises to the Jews and to the nation of Israel alone. Man, we believe that we're the church. And so what we do is we go to the New Testament and we only claim promises when the promises are addressed 
to us when it's got our name on it. Again, we're not the nation of Israel, and we're not the church, and so what we do is we go where God wrote to the church. We go where he wrote to the church of the Romans, the Corinthians, the churches of Galatia, the church at Ephesus and Philippi and Colossae and Thessalonians. We go to the places where, where God was writing to pastors of New Testament churches just like this one, to Timothy and, and to Titus. We claim promises given to the church. And what we do is we invest our time and our energy and our money and, and, and all that we're, we're doing, we invest it in the spiritual kingdom. Not in this literal, physical one. We, we invest our energies in the spiritual kingdom by reproducing spiritual children that are called sons of God who have had restored to them the image of God that was lost in the fall. And, and man, we, we believe that our job in this dispensation is to go and make disciples in every nation. And until the Lord raptures us off this planet... We see that that's what we're supposed to be doing because we're the church. And when it comes to the government, we believe that every single one of them is, is destined for failure until the king comes back and the government rests upon his shoulders. And we believe that every effort of man and of human government to bring about unity and world peace whether it be through the United Nations, the welfare system, the World Council of Churches, the National Council of Churches, UNICEF, the Peace Corps, whatever it is, we believe that every single one of them is going to end up where every attempt of man has ended up all through the centuries. In a riot, in a revolution, in a civil war, in a hospital bed, and ultimately into a big old fat hole in the ground. That's what we believe about government. Now, we go, man, we go to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we find there that we're supposed to be good citizens. And so because we're good citizens, we vote. And because we're good citizens, we, we, we do what the government tells us to do. But don't, 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 if you're thinking about joining this church, don't think for a minute that we're going to get ourselves sidetracked, get, get, get sidetracked on politics and saving whales and saving the earth. And you know what? We're, we're all caught up with this this stupid little thing of saving souls. That's, that's, that's what we're all about as a premillennialist. But, but you see, the, the postmillennialist has a whole different view. The, the postmillennialist believes that the job of the Christian, and, and folks, now, now, you think I'm going to be making fun of this. I'm just telling you, this is what is out there. This is the belief of the post-millennialist. I'm, I'm not reading in anything. Talk to any of them. They believe that the job of the Christian is to make the world a better place to live. To bring about peace on earth and goodwill toward men. And you see, when we get the world to that place, then the Lord will come back and rule and reign for a thousand years we are bringing in the kingdom and folks quite honestly that's why the Methodists and the Lutherans the Episcopalians and the Southern Baptists if they do send out missionaries 
99 times out of 100, probably more like 999 times out of 1,000, it won't be some guy that's out there preaching the gospel, winning people to Christ, and establishing churches to ground people in the Word of God, and then sending them into other parts of the world to do the same exact thing. You know what it'll be? It'll be some social deal. It'll be to feed the poor, to set up a hospital or a, a, a school. Listen, I'm not saying that it, schools and uh, you know hospitals and feeding the poor, I'm, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with any of those things. But now listen, to do that in hopes of making this world a better and more fe- peaceful place, or to do that in, in lieu of winning... They're hell-bound souls to Christ by preaching the glorious gospel of Christ and introducing them to the Prince of Peace. Listen, there's no comparison. No comparison whatsoever. And if you think that, that I'm presenting some biased opinion of this thing, again, I beg you, go, go study it out. Go check it out. I'm telling you, that's what the people in this... That's why the people of this planet, that's why churches today all around you are doing what they're doing. It's because they think... Our job is to bring in the kingdom. And I'm just telling you, folks, you know what? You would think by now that after all the bloodshed and all the torture and the wars and the imprisonments and the revolution, you would have thought by now that man would have figured out that he is incapable of working out his own destiny. I mean, you would have thought, I mean, do you, do you realize how many facts of human history religious and political leaders have to flush in order to present an optimistic future? I mean, it, it's crazy, and yet you keep hearing, and, we, you know, and we're, we're sitting there on our TV going, oh, you know, this guy sounds pretty good to me, you know, and, and they're talking about, united, we may bravely face the future. We have nothing to fear but fear itself. Until the time comes when all men live peaceably together. We must not lose faith in man's ability to... Let us not despair, but press forward until the time come when... And fill in the gaps. I mean, it's over and over and over again. Somewhere you would have thought, somebody would have said, you know what? Aristotle's golden age didn't work. Johnson's war on poverty didn't work. Kennedy's Camelot didn't work. Roosevelt's New Deal didn't work. Bush's New World Order. You know what? They all sold us that stuff. I think it's going to get better, don't you? It ain't getting better, y'all. It's getting worse and worse and worse. I mean, it's, it's, you know what it is? It's a picture of a of a bloody, beaten, mangled, bruised, torn, maimed, half-dead sinner talking about what he's going to do to help himself. After spitting in the face of God's offer to help him. Hello? And I'm telling you, the whole contemporary idea is, you know, we're closer now than we've ever been before. When the truth is, we're no closer than we were when Cain thumped Abel in Genesis chapter 4. It's the same thing, just 
over and over and over again. You know, here in this country, we hold up Lincoln's Gettysburg Address as some great deal. And folks, have you ever really thought about it? Here were 43,000 American soldiers dead and gone. And he's a fine man, but he stands up and he says, The government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. See, folks, the Bible talks about a government of God brought to this earth by God and set up for God where men are not equal but are divided into sheep and goats. But boy, I like that, that Gettysburg dress, buddy. That was a moving thing. No, this is a moving thing right here. And it's told you that the government's, it, it ain't going to be right. Until the King of Kings comes. And listen, I, I'm, I want you to know, I'm thankful that he allowed me to be born in this country. I salute the flag. I love my country. But I'm not looking for the U.S. government to bring peace to this world. And I, I'm not interested in a government of, by, and for the people. What I'm interested in, in and as I think it's the same thing everybody in this room is interested in, is Jesus Christ coming back and annihilating his enemies taking one feet and putting it on the chest of Satan, taking the other one and crushing his stinking head, kicking that sucker into the bottomless pit, setting up his kingdom where he rules and reigns forever. That, that's where I vote. Amen. And you know what, folks? If you go back in history, it's an amazing thing. I mean, you, you find that people actually thought, they actually thought that the Civil War would be that event that finally brought in the kingdom. That's why, that's why Lincoln was saying the things that he was saying. I think we've done it now. I, I think we've got the kingdom here now. And I think Jesus can come back. It won't perish from the earth. And then along comes World War I. And so everybody said, oh, I guess it wasn't here, was it? You see, man's an, an intelligent being. And you see, when that didn't do it, people get, began to jump ship and became amillennialist. They stopped believing that Christ would come back to rule and reign at all. And, and, and what they had to do is they had to go to the places where the Bible talked about that event and say that, that you, you really can't take these passages literally, that there's, there's not really a, a, a literal kingdom a, a, at all. There's only a, a spiritual kingdom. Kingdom, but folks, do you realize that for you to ever come to that point, you've got to you've got to throw out half of your Bible and all of the kingdom promises to Israel. I mean, Isaiah 11, Zechariah 14, Amos chapter 6, Joel chapter 2, Ezekiel 44 to 48. You've got to spiritualize, spiritualize all of those to be fulfilled in the church. But I want to make sure you understand that amillennialism didn't start after World War I or as a result of World War I. It was only popularized at that point as a, a, in, in the teaching of so-called Bible believers. But actually, amillennialism started right where God says that it did in the Smyrna church period with those who were teaching that Christians are now the Jews and the church is now... Israel, and that the kingdom of God, the spiritual kingdom, and the kingdom of heaven, the literal kingdom, are all one and the same. And, and listen, the reason, now listen, the reason 
that all of this is such an important aspect of history. And the, and the reason that I've taken all of the time to, to talk about this this morning is that this is one of the key seeds Satan used in the Smyrna church period to establish his counterfeit church. And, and, and now listen, the reason I keep emphasizing that is there's one who's coming here in just a couple of years who's going to do the same exact thing. Are, are you tracking with me? The Antichrist is going to come set up a one-world church. Guess what doctrines he's going to use to do it, okay? Now are you starting to get the drift of how all this is so important and why we see Christianity right now embracing doctrines of devils that is blasphemous, that will again set up a satanic church? You won't take the time to, to go into what happened immediately after the Smyrna church period. I encourage you some, somewhere along the way, some of you new folks, I'd encourage you to go through the study of church history that we did in, in this church. Find out what happened in the Pergamos church period based on this doctrine that we're talking about. It was a, a system of religion that hit this planet. It goes by the name of the universal Christianity. that is alive and well on this planet in 1998, now listen, that has one billion followers, one out of every six people on this planet embraces that religion in the name of Christianity. It's the synagogue of Satan that you see in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 9. And that probably would be an amazing thing to us, wouldn't it? If we didn't see the very same thing happening right in front of our very eyes all over again as the Antichrist is about ready to get his false church set up and running for the tribulation period. And guess what? It's not going to be called the synagogue of Satan as far as the world is concerned. You know what it's going to be called? The universal Christianity, just like it's always been called. And if you need me to define that for you, I'll be in the foyer right after the service. And I'm not trying to be smart. So folks... I don't know for sure if you, if you grabbed all that today. You feel like you hung with it? But chapter 11, book of Revelation, is a chapter you don't want to miss. And we've got a lot of stuff coming here, graduations and all this stuff coming in the next several weeks. I'm just telling you, if you want to have the Bible open to you, you, you better make sure that you can cut straight Revelation chapter 11, and, and I will say this, just pick up a commentary and see what they all tell you. This is the most difficult chapter in the Bible. You know why it's the most difficult chapter in the Bible? 
is you don't believe what you read, where you read it, to who it was written to. And you'll find out it's really not that, that difficult to understand. But, but now listen, if you're here this morning, never received Christ as your Savior, I know that this was some deep stuff that we were talking about here today. But you know what? I do know this. I do know that it was simple enough to hear today that there's a lot of stuff that goes on in the name of the Bible, in the name of Jesus, that doesn't have anything whatsoever to do with him, that has everything to do with the devil. And folks, just to make the message of the Bible real simple, what the message is, is that you're a sinner. And because of that, a penalty has been placed on you. And you can't do anything about it. So the God of this universe stepped in because he loved you. And he did something about it. And he's the only one who can. He died on the cross for your sin to take it away so that you could have a relationship with him. And you see, if we try to do anything to add to what he did, then we'll nullify what he did. We're saying it wasn't good enough. And it's, it's blasphemous. And the simple message is, you don't have to join this church to have a relationship with God you don't have to be tagged a Baptist in fact you'd probably do good not to you don't have to be tagged a Baptist all you got to do is just simply believe what God said you can't do anything about your sin so God I come and I receive what you did on the cross for my sin as payment in full I want you to take over the control of my life. And that's it. And we've talked about a lot of stuff, but if you're here today and don't know Christ, that's all you need to get today. That's all you need to get. And Lord, I pray today that you would speak to the hearts of the people that are in this room that don't know you pray that they would be saved this morning. And Lord, I, I pray for our church. I recognize, I, I knew going into this today that this is, this is heavy stuff. This is, this is deep stuff. And Lord, you have told us that by your Spirit you would reveal, yea, the deep things of God. We thank you for what you've allowed us to be able to see in this overview this morning of, of Revelation chapter 11. And then next week as we begin to go and, and through this verse by verse, we pray that you would reveal to us the, the truth of this incredible chapter of the Bible that really is, is so key to understanding all of the revelation that you've given to us. So we ask that you would you'd teach us I pray again that you'd save the lost. In Jesus' name, amen.